This is the Spring Research Project podcast where we talk about community sponsorship of refugees. My name is Eliza Bateman and I am Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub. And I'm Tiomir Sabchev, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Refugee Hub. Welcome again to the Spring Research Project podcast. In the context of our Spring Research Project, I had the chance to interview dozens of sponsors and sponsoring organizations across Canada and learn about their sponsorship experience. One theme that emerged repeatedly in these conversations was the bureaucratization of the private sponsorship of refugees program. Sponsors who had been participating in the program for decades recalled the simple application process and little paperwork in the olden days. Very often, they contrasted this to their more recent experience in refugee sponsorship, which involved stringent requirements for sponsors and lengthy application forms. And what is very important, my interviewees noted that these changes had a direct impact on their motivation to continue sponsoring refugees and on the willingness of new sponsors to join the program. To discuss the bureaucratization of refugee sponsorship, I have invited Lynn Weaver, who is a senior program manager at the Canadian Refugee Sponsorship Agreement Holders Association, the so-called SAC Council. Lynn has a master's degree in global leadership and rich international experience. She has worked and volunteered in Guinea, Ethiopia, France, and Costa Rica. She is also a volunteer board director of social planning COVICHAN in British Columbia, where she focuses on poverty reduction strategies, anti-racism, and decolonization work. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our podcast, Lynn. Thank you so much. As you know, I've followed the important work of the Spring Project, and so I'm grateful to have this opportunity to contribute today. Thank you for your kind words. In my view, we have an extremely important topic to discuss today, but before we delve into it, may I ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself your experience with refugee sponsorship and your current role at the SAC Council. Mm -hmm, Thank you. Well, to start, I just want to orient myself, land myself on unceded Halkamina Mustweem territory on what's now known as the um, Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. And importantly, in the context of this work, to acknowledge the unearned privilege I have as someone who is Canadian-born and of predominantly European heritage. Like so many, there is a history of forced migration in my family. I think the human story really is a story of migration. Um, uh, But I came to this work through, I was executive director for nearly a decade at an immigrant and refugee serving agency. And as an organization, we were a community sponsor with volunteer support and then became a SAW. And separate from that, I have been a volunteer sponsor as a group of five um, for family reunification, sponsoring uh, friends, family members. And so in my current role as senior program manager for the staff team at the Canadian Refugee Sponsorship Agreement Holders Association, long name, as you say, the SAW Association. Um, SAWs, as your listeners likely know, are organizations across Canada outside of Quebec that oversee sponsorship of individuals meeting the definition of refugee. So we have a representative elected council from among the SAW community and our staff team supports SAWs and councils 
um, and we're known as the Navigation Unit. So we're the Umbrella Association for Organizations in Canada, collectively responsible for sponsoring thousands of refuge seekers annually. For example, in 2023, the cap on SAW sponsorships, in other words, the maximum number of individuals that can be sponsored through SAWs, is set at 13,000 individuals. This is a really significant contribution, and this is what I love about this work. When we think about a challenge like forced migration and the enormity of it and the seemingly unsolvability of it, there are people who are saying through their actions, well, this is what I can do and, and doing it. You know, SAWs are... Diverse, some engage in direct sponsorship, others work exclusively with or through constituent groups or co-sponsors. SAW representatives, as you know well, often have lived experience as refugees or are part of diaspora communities more broadly. Some are faith-based, some are humanitarian organizations, some are social service providers, and so on. They range from small or not-so-small volunteer-run entities all the way to significant staffed multinational organizations. Um, it's just such an inspiring space to work in. Thank you for this brief introduction. And it's very interesting, actually, to hear that about your relationship, both personally and professionally, to private sponsorship. I want now to delve into the discussion that we want to focus on today. And I want to first ask you, can you explain to our listeners, what do we mean by bureaucratization when we talk about the private sponsorship of refugees program? Mm -hmm. This is such an important question. And actually, bureaucracy can mean growing efficiency. So over bureaucratization captures this sense of growing administrative burden. So it's certainly not a new debate. It was, I think, the early 1900s when Max Weber explored the notion of bureaucratization. But what I think is important is that it's interwoven with power and the, the power dynamics between government and civil society. So part of what we're hearing from the SAW community is around the power imbalance between government and civil society. This isn't on an individual level, to be clear. Our colleagues in the Department of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, or IRCC, are also passionate about refugee resettlement. And many have experience in the sector prior to joining the public service. But it's about needing to view the program and its bureaucratization systematically and holistically. And the bureaucracy shows up in every step. Yes, the program is and should be professional, but the grassroots intent behind the program must be preserved. It's these grassroots elements that are foundational, really, to the success of the program how embedded SAWs are in their communities and regions, for example, or how private sponsorship fosters family reunification or, or what is sometimes called kinship reunification, and how communities are mobilized to respond to need. Really the most human response, literally where we see our humanity. So in other words, the private sponsorship program is not just a privately funded version of the Resettlement Assistance Program, or RAP, which is the publicly funded services for government-assisted refugees. It's its own unique program whose objectives overlap, certainly, with those of RAP, but also go beyond. Objectives for both include refugee protection, but for the private sponsorship program, family and community reunification and community mobilization are also key objectives. From an equity lens, this needs to be accounted for, given that most named cases, which represents the majority of private sponsorship, are broadly family-linked, meaning the sponsors themselves often have lived refugee experience. Today, coincidentally, Lynn, I was reading a, a speech from Tom Denton, 
for those of our listeners who don't know who Tom Denton is, he's very popular in the Canadian private sponsorship world. He's from Winnipeg, and there he is currently the executive director of Hospitality House Refugee Ministry. And Tom Denton, in his speech in 2003 already, was telling people about his experience in the end of the 70s, early 80s, and how, how simple, how straightforward, how easy and satisfying the process of uh, privately sponsoring refugees was back then. And then in 2003, he was doing a parallel between the simplicity of the initial sponsoring process and the reality two decades later, saying that there was increasingly bureaucratization of the, of the sponsorship program at that time already. So clearly, we are not talking about uh, a recent development uh, in our discussion today. This made me wonder, what are the reasons behind this bureaucratization trend that we have been observing and how it has evolved after this speech of Tom Denton in, in the early 2000s? Mm-hmm. I think you've really hit on the main piece, actually, is that uh, one of the biggest contributing factors is the long, slow evolution of the program in the Canadian context, from a few initial civil society partners in the late 70s to now 136 plus saws and growing. Um, Things could be more trust-based and less onerous when the program was smaller. Intentional scaling never happened as the program is really driven by community interest. I think this is one piece that could be quite different in the international context where countries taking on private sponsorship can make scaling decisions in advance based partly on seeing the evolution of Canada's program over time. Another part of this trend toward over-bureaucratization is the double-edged sword, so to speak, of Canada being seen as a leader in the private sponsorship space. In sharing our program as a model for the world, it behooves us to make sure the program is well in order. Packaging the program for export, so to speak, revealed that there were areas that that needed work. But it also reflects what I'll call a lowest common denominator approach versus a trusted partner approach. Accountability is so important, but a lot of the limitations on SAWS and sponsors are ultimately in place to guard against fraud or abuses of the program. And these are valid concerns, of course, but for the next stage of policy evolution, can we differentiate what is necessary to ensure refugee protection and program integrity versus what is scrutiny and surveillance that damages important government civil society relationships? SAWS and their partners in resettlement, known as constituent groups and co-sponsors, contribute over 1.3 million annually in direct resettlement support. That's the 12 month support in cash and in-kind contributions, as well as covering their own overhead, administration and staffing. SAWS contribute significantly to Canada's overall resettlement efforts. A trusted partner approach would meaningfully acknowledge these, these contributions. And just to be more concrete, for our listeners who might not be so familiar with the latest developments in the Canadian Private Sponsorship of Refugees program, can you perhaps highlight for them some of the components of this bureaucratization that we are talking about? The example I'll use is one that has had a lot of public discussion, so your listeners may be familiar with it. A hot topic for SAWS over the past few years has been the introduction of the Program Integrity Framework. 
I won't take exception to any particular aspect of it, but to look at it as a whole in addressing a gap rather than looking at what the needs were and what could support SAWS in carrying out this important work. It was a bureaucratic top-down approach that really reinforced that power imbalance. To be clear, the association absolutely seeks a high-quality risk-managed program. We all value the program and do want to maintain the integrity of it. So it's not the intent behind the framework that's an issue, but it's the approach to addressing program integrity needs. For example, a solution that has emerged collaboratively from within the SAW community is the idea of a post-arrival assurance fund. So providing support for quality and risk management versus monitoring and more punitive measures. Um, So a fund that could cover things like unforeseen medical or dental needs, family breakdown in family-linked cases, or increased costs for for SAWs um, based on in-kind deductions, like if a a no-fault breakdown is declared. Those types of um, emergent expenses that pop up over time that that SAWs could be supported in meeting rather than monitored in meeting, if that makes sense. So these types of um, support structures that could minimize risk and that that risk benefits all the stakeholders, resettled newcomers benefit from that, sponsoring partners, and the federal program more broadly. Um, The other concrete piece to this, I think, is the SAW capacity development, and that capacity doesn't just mean more training, um, or at least not training alone, but it's about systemic supports and structures. And, And a really good example of this type of development over time is an IRCC-funded project with a SAW called MCC and the Centre for Community-Based Research in Canada doing SAW evaluation development, a toolkit development. So we can look at collective learnings um, and collective impact over time, but also to have it be stakeholder-driven. What is the community perspective on what it means to do a good job in the context of this program? What does program integrity mean to resettled newcomers or mean to the community groups that are involved in sponsorship? So again, removing the over-bureaucratization of the top-down approach and having that more grassroots learning and sharing. I've also noticed in some uh, recent media publications that perhaps this bureaucratization and the program integrity framework that you were talking about may affect unequally different sponsorship agreement holders depending on their capacity. Can you elaborate a little bit perhaps on, on this issue? Yeah, SAWs have demonstrated their resilience over their year, over the years and their commitment to refugee resettlement. And I'm confident that they will pivot to meet the new challenges of the program integrity framework. But it has placed some really significant bureaucratic hurdles in front of SAWs. Um, and as you say, disproportionately impacting certain types of SAWs. Um, So, for example, the requirement for a third-party financial audit, it's a very expensive new requirement. But I think the question we need to be asking with requirements like this is, does this provide useful information? What does this audit requirement tell us about the organization that other things like the organizational assessment doesn't already tell us? What does this tell us about refugee protection in the post-arrival space? 
Um, it's conceivable, for example, that an organization could have their finances well in order and still not fulfill their sponsorship obligations. So is this requirement providing meaningful information or is it a bureaucratic hurdle? Or worse, is it using the bureaucracy as a proxy for curating the type and, let's say, sophistication of sponsoring organizations? So it really is a significant equity issue. So we're asking questions like, who is applying to become a SAW um, and who has been successful or not and why? Who in Canada can't access sponsorship and why? For example, is, is language a barrier or are you know, other elements of the bureaucracy barriers? Um, and just the framing overall, that evaluation tends to look at who is already accessing the program and what is working well or what isn't. But we need to also ask who is excluded from the program altogether because of the over-bureaucratization. And in this context, based on what you just explained, looking at the recent so-called revalidation of sponsorship agreement holders, can you explain to us perhaps what were the struggles in this process of some sponsorship agreement holders? You already elaborated on some of them, but I would love to hear from you about the differences there between different sponsorship agreement holders in this recent process in Canada. In some ways, I think the revalidation exercise is a good reset, <laughs> in a sense. It's giving SAWS and the program a fresh start. Um, but we have heard from from SAWS broadly that the process was onerous. Uh, it was a very significant and detailed um, package that, that needed to be submitted. The main piece that we'll see come up is around the, the risk categories. Um, so the revalidation is just a met or unmet. Either you can continue being a SAW or you can't. So that's a, a bit more straightforward, but then the risk management categories get a little bit more, more complex. So I won't go into detail on them, but, um, but just looking in terms of types of SAWs, I mean, certainly volunteer-run SAWs or lower-budget SAWs will struggle to meet requirements like the audit. Um, having a, a third-party CPA audit an organization, depending on its size and complexity can be very expensive. Um, but there's also pieces like language barriers. You know, the in in other spheres of life in Canada as a diverse nation, we have multilingual resources. Like I think of healthcare access as a good example. Um, could that be possible in this program? Could the forms be available, for example, in more than just French and English? Um, there's I think ways of making sure that diverse populations can continue to access the program and that it can meet that sort of secondary objective, as I mentioned earlier, of the kinship reunification. That's really the role that it plays, whether we acknowledge that or not, um, I think is part of what helps um, bring in groups that might otherwise be excluded. So far, we spoke primarily for the organizations that sponsor newcomers across Canada, and this totally makes sense because of your professional background. But in the beginning of our conversation, you also mentioned that you're personally involved in uh, refugee sponsorship. And in this introduction, I also alluded to the consequences of the process of bureaucratization on sponsors' motivation. 
So I wanted now to shift a little bit the discussion from the organizations to the actual sponsors and ask you from your experience, can you tell to our listeners what may be the consequences of the bureaucratization on the sponsors and perhaps on the private sponsorship of refugees program overall from this point of view? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think the the motivation for sponsorship and, and maintaining that over significant processing times is is a real concern that sponsoring organizations face. The family link dynamic helps there because, of course, sponsors then are invested for the the long term regardless. But I think in general, um, the opaqueness of the bureaucracy and the number of hurdles, bureaucratic hurdles and financial hurdles um, do prevent people from participating. That one's a bit of a tough sell, honestly, in the sense that there is consistently more interest in the program than there are spaces. Um, for example, you know, I mentioned the the global cap this year is over 13,000 spaces, but the interest in spaces just from the SOC community alone is over 18,000. So I think, you know, the, the program does have enough momentum and there's such a uh, an imperative for family reunification that that continues to motivate the program. But I think that we can do better in terms of removing some of those hurdles. And again, acknowledging that some hurdles disproportionately impact some communities more than others, for example, around language level or around access to um, administrative funds for things like audited financial statements. One difference that I noticed through our research was the one between sponsors who were sponsoring through the assistance of sponsorship agreement holders and on the other hand, the so-called groups of five who didn't have this administrative assistance and perhaps were facing more challenges in the process of sponsorship, facing the bureaucratic aspects that we have been discussing. Can you comment on this part of the sponsorship community, let's put it this way, that actually cannot benefit from the assistance of organizations like the SAS? That's a good question. I would say, and this is not reflective of um, the opinion of the SAS Association. This is just my sort of visioning for the future. I think an ideal scenario would be for there to be enough diversity in the SAW community and enough spaces and enough capacity that there wouldn't be a need for groups of five. And I don't mean restricting or eliminating. I mean that there just would be capacity within the SAW structure because SAWs and, you know, the the association more broadly do carry so much valuable experience that actually helps um, in in the pre-arrival and in the post-arrival space so that no one has to go through the process and navigate the, the complexity of the bureaucracy on their own. Um, and I think that adds a layer of protection for resettled newcomers as well, having that organizational support behind them in the post-arrival space as well. And as I say, for sponsors to feel supported. So that would be my sort of ideal <laughs> vision for the future. But in in the meantime, I would say, yes, absolutely. In the G5 space, the the, the same issues apply. There are huge requirements for social and financial capital to even participate in the program. And then once you do, there's, 
you know, complex forms, forms that don't open in certain browsers, all the way to, um, you know, the, the complexities of post-arrival, you know, the nuances and complexities of life in a new environment. Um, you know, even things like opening a bank account can be really complex. Some banks, you know, don't want to give accounts to people who don't already have a financial history in Canada and so on. There's just so many layers um, that, that sponsors are, are dealing with. I think a lot of the group of five sponsorships are also family linked, the same pattern that, that we see within the SAW community, which, you know, again, I think having that broader support so that it's not all falling on the relatives is, is really valuable. There's also, of course, service providing organizations, SPOs, the, the settlement agencies, so-called in the Canadian context um, that, that can provide that support. But I think we do need to look at what the whole journey looks like from start to finish. You know, we have maybe mapping <laughs> the arrival of someone through a refugee pathway, wanting to be reunited with family members that are still abroad. What do they have to do next? How do they come up with $30,000 plus? How do they find um, a saw or other Canadians to form a group of five with? How do they navigate all the forms? How, you know, like walking through that whole process and really um, understanding the complexity and, and seeing where those hurdles are, where those barriers are. You're totally right. And, and the devil is often in the details and there the contribution of sponsorship agreement holders is indeed essential in both the pre-arrival, but also in many cases in the post-arrival process. Now we are towards the end of our discussion. And what I always do is asking our guests about some policy recommendations and more broadly recommendations uh, based on our conversation. So today I want to ask you, about two things. On the one hand, what kind of recommendations would you have when we talk about the private sponsorship of refugees program and the bureaucratization? And on the other hand, when we talk about emerging refugee sponsorship programs abroad, again, based on our discussion on the bureaucratization, what would be your recommendations for practitioners, policymakers, and even sponsors abroad? Mm -hmm. This touches on the bureaucratization, but also goes beyond. But I think one of the keys is including refugees and resettled newcomers in meaningful ways in all the spaces where decisions are being made. In our work, for example, with the elected SAW Council, more than 50% of council members have lived immigrant or refugee experience. This is representative, as we know, the majority of private sponsorship in Canada is family and community linked. So as a sector, we all need to keep this at the forefront. There's certainly more we can do as an association to center this lived experience. But in particular, I think this is important for policymakers and what I'll call policy interpreters, the, the folks that take the policies and turn them into practice. Sometimes a good policy can play out poorly on the ground or have unintended consequences. So really centering the, the experience on the ground. I think um, we touched on this earlier, but building capacity for scaling the program and really pre-visioning that. And again, that capacity is not just training and that there are ways for capacity building to be supportive and that it doesn't have to be money necessarily. It's it's the structures and the policy environment and all of those pieces that, that foster that capacity. 
this also came up as well, but the idea of community-based research, centering stakeholders in data collection and having that shared data, um, shared ownership of data within the sponsorship community, I think is a, a really valuable t- way to build that um, sustainable scaling and to build in support structures like SAWS and the SAW Association. You know, we talked about that, that experience, everything from minute details about the applications all the way to um, post-arrival space and support for sponsoring partners if challenges do arise. The, the experience that sponsor repeat sponsors gain over time is invaluable. Um, and the role of the SAW Association, something like that, a vehicle for bringing those on-the-ground voices and on-the-ground experience to government, both in terms of policy and procedure, and to help foster those relationships of trust and accountability. Um, our federal colleagues are very collaborative um, in, in these capacity-building discussions, and that, that really strengthens the whole program. But without the coordination of SAWS, that, that wouldn't be possible. Um, I think a focus on support for sponsors does benefit resettled newcomers. I think we diminish the value of that. We don't want to talk about what sponsors need because it's a refugee-centered program, but I, I don't think they're two different things. I think the more sponsors are supported in the work, the better the outcomes are for the newcomers that are being sponsored. Lynn, thank you so much for all the insights that you shared with us and for your time today. And we wish you a lot of success in your work at the Sponsorship Agreement Holder Association Council. Thank you so much.